What a joyous morning it is to assemble, to do so in the very name of the God of heaven with a strong desire, of course, to praise Him, to honor Him and worship. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. That famous refrain from Jesus Himself in Matthew 4 verse 10. This morning as we come to this portion of our time of worship together, let's reflect for the next few moments on a lesson I've entitled Labor for No, for no Benefit. You'll notice on the wall to my left and right, we have that opening slide with the text being the one that Brother Vestal read just a moment ago from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Some introductory thoughts might well put us in a, in a mindset, a frame of mind, if you will, in which we will give some consideration to the following specifics. Beginning at the top of that slide, wouldn't you say, it is certainly a recognized thing when we expect to receive pay comparable to the effort we've invested. So if someone hires a particular person, it is anticipated that the pay directed to that individual will at least be reasonable in light of the effort that's been expended. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 and following, we have a description given a parable our Savior taught where you recall that there was one in charge of a vineyard and he went out early in the morning and he made arrangements for some to go into the vineyard. And then at the third hour, he did the same thing again. That's nine o'clock in the morning. And then at the sixth hour, that's midday, he did the same thing again. At the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, same thing again. Finally, at the eleventh hour, five o'clock in the afternoon, he went and again made arrangements for, for those workers to go into the vineyard. When it came time for pay, he paid all of them the same amount. And yet those who had started early in the morning were irate. We have borne the labor and heat of the day and you've paid them the same as us. You notice they considered it unfair. They considered it improper and unjust. And may I suggest, it would seem to me that probably is the way you and I tend to look upon things like that. Today we're not going to discuss working in a vineyard, literally, but rather we're going to discuss laboring in the Lord's kingdom. Could there ever be times when labor would in fact be for no benefit? That's an interesting thought and I would invite you to study it with me for the next few moments this morning. Because you'll notice as we close that slide, we're going to ask, if that principle is indeed the case, then it would do us well to not only understand it, but seek the great application of it. Let's revisit the text that was read just a moment ago, Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven... Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Let's revisit that perhaps in order. First, Jesus very bluntly said, Not everyone who calls me Lord... Not everyone who makes that directed appreciation of me, verse 21, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It isn't enough merely to use that word, to mouth his name, because he rather quickly makes this observation. Verse 22, many, he says, not few, many, 
on that day are going to say, Lord, we've prophesied in your name. Notice that means they in some way taught in the name of Christ. They in some way gave instruction relative to the nature of Jesus Christ. Not only that, there were some, it says, who had cast out devils. And in their appreciation, they had done it in His name. That is to say, they called upon His character and the nature of His power. Finally, verse 22, there are those who said, We've done many wonderful works in your name. Would you be impressed? Here are individuals who had made investment by time, by effort, by energy, by money, by sacrifice. We've taught in your name. We have cast out demons in your name. We've done many things in your name. Here was labor invested. May we ask, did it meet with benefit? Verse 23, And then will I profess unto them. That word profess carries with it a great strength, doesn't it? There's no question or ambiguity about this. I will profess unto them, the Master taught. I never knew you. You may have thought you were doing these things in my name, prophesying, casting out demons, many wonderful works. Notice, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Aren't you impressed with the fact then that what they call those activities that they had done, casting out demons, prophesying, many wonderful works, the Lord called it iniquity. He called it iniquity. Aren't you shocked by that? Many things our world calls upright, pious, righteous, and godly, our God of heaven is bound to look upon with sadness because of the iniquity that is, that is within it. You'll notice one more time in verse 23, Then will I profess unto them I never knew you. May I suggest labor for no benefit. Here was exhibit A, case in point from the lips of the master himself. Here was labor invested it didn't have any benefit. In fact, it had detriment. Lost eternally because of it. Because of the way it was done. No wonder as you and I reflect upon that. We might notice that by no means is the only biblical example. What do you think about the children of Israel? Here were individuals who had been brought by the hand of God out of Egyptian bondage as they proceeded through that wilderness wandering, isn't it true that they labored mightily? Six days out of every week they had to pick up manna, had to invest some effort to care for themselves and their family. And yet, believe it or not, as the years passed by, only two out of 603,550 fighting men entered Canaan. But they had worked a lot, gathering manna, fighting off enemies, taking care of the family and the flocks. But the labor didn't have the benefit they wanted. They didn't enter the promised land. What about another example? In Matthew chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, John the Immerser, as he preached to those on that day, he very powerfully told them directly. They had a desire to be baptized of him, but he rather quickly prefaced that by saying, bring forth Fruits meet for repentance. The labor that they had been investing heretofore was not going to get the job done. Labor for no benefit. Maybe another example. In James 1.22, aren't each of us reminded rather directly by that interesting writer James, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. 
Now, one may hear and engage in some effort, but it must be a doing of the Word of God. For if it isn't, that labor, whatever's invested, will be to no benefit yet. Labor to no benefit is a very challenging consideration in some ways, isn't it? As you and I make application of that principle, let's close this slide and do so like this. In Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus rather directly said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Now that message was as compelling for those of that day as it is for you and me today. Notice again the text, many on that day of judgment are going to refer to Him as Lord. In their estimation and in their perspective, we've served you. But they really hadn't. All the effort they had invested... All the sacrifice, all the inconvenience, all the labor, whatever it may have been, will be all for naught, meaningless, vain, inadequate, called iniquity. That should stir you and me to the core of our being. We must ensure that what we are doing is in harmony with this book. Our opinions, our suspicions... Our speculations will be meaningless, and they may well involve labor for no benefit. Aren't you excited then to give consideration to those faithful Bible characters who did invest labor that was readily and duly appreciated? Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. Notice he did something, and God looked upon him with favor. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6 verse 8. For you and me today, why don't we then devote the remainder of our time to at least ponder, what about labor, effort, that may well result in no benefit? As frightening as some of those thoughts may well be, the examples are legion in the Word of God. And why don't we then come to the first one? Let's at least tailor our consideration for the moment to some matters of worship. Worship is such a powerful thing. As presented in the Bible, how often are verses present that remind us about the integrity, the meaning, the character, and the ultimate fundamental basis that is worship. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Give glory into His name. The famous words of David in 1 Chronicles 16, 29. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. Psalm 89, 7. Jesus again taught about that matter of worship, that it's to be directed to no one other than the Father. But now with that, why don't we ask about some of the particulars of worship. And let's start with singing. It is a fantastic thing to notice the place that God has given music in the worship of the church. And He has told us about the music that He wants, and it's that a cappella, that vocal presentation of music. We have engaged in that, of course, this morning and done so lovingly and with beautiful presentation of hymns that present the truth of God. But would you consider this with me? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. As you and I then engage in the act of singing, might we take careful observation. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's a statement of commandment. 
as you and I desire and in fact have strong yearning for the Word of God to emanate and dwell within us. We know Psalm 119 verse 11 says that if we allow that Word to dwell within us, it'll keep us from sin. But yet in that passage before us, Colossians 3.16, what specific way do we let this happen? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You'll notice as we sing with grace in our heart to the Lord, we've been given a commandment. It is just as wrong to not sing as it is to not come to worship services. Now that leads us to note this. Perhaps there's an individual who gets up in the morning on Sunday and prepares him or herself, getting the clothes ready, getting the children ready, investing the gasoline and the energy to come and arrive at the services, but they come and they don't sing as a Christian. They refuse to sing. May I submit to you all the labor and all the effort expended to come has been to no benefit because they're violating this additional commandment that the God of heaven has placed upon them. Labor to no benefit. But what's more? Suppose they do sing, but their heart's not in it. It is, I would ask you note, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. As Paul addressed that church in Corinth, he reminded them, and with pressing duty, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. Our singing then is such as it must be by command of God to be done with understanding. It is to be done with enthusiasm. It is to be done with excitement, filling our heart in light of what God has done and continues to do for us. Our singing is an open and evidential response to the nature of our heart's feelings toward the God of heaven. And yet when individuals, as we gather, and some move their mouths but their mind is on lunch, or their mind is on the ball game that will start about 12 o'clock or something like that, or their mind is elsewhere, may I suggest to you that effort is then for no benefit. A frightening consideration, isn't it? May you and I then sing with the Spirit in as much as we've come to worship God. The entirety of this service is not for your preference or mine. It is not to satisfy our physical, carnal wishes or otherwise. It is to worship God. And if there's anything the Bible teaches, it teaches that He not only is deserving of that, but He looks with careful note upon the way that worship is directed His way, and He will not accept it if it is not offered in accordance to His will. Many occasions in ancient Israel, He specifically said, I won't accept your worship. Maybe in light of that singing, why don't we come to the bottom of that slide then and note again the exclamation, labor to no benefit. And this applies to a Christian. What about another example? We recognize that one very critical and compelling part certainly of our worship time together on the Lord's Day has to do with the Lord's Supper. The observance of that meal. That supper reminiscent, of course, of the death of our Savior. How moving, how compelling, how meaningful. It is such a significant thing that lifted high in 1 Corinthians 11 is the famous description in which Paul rebuked the Corinthians for their abuse of it. You and I know well we're commanded by way of apostolic example to keep it. Acts 20 verse 7 said, "...on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread..." 
They came together, you'll notice. And a part of that was for the breaking of bread and how significant, how meaningful it was. You and I in our mind's eye rush back to the scene of that night prior to the Lord's crucifixion. When, when they were observing the Passover, right after that, the Lord took the unleavened bread and He took the fruit of the vine and said, This do in remembrance of me. That's plain. That's plain. May I suggest, and as we take it, we must not ever strive to not take it in the way that He said. Now maybe that sounds trivial and minor and insignificant, but notice the Corinthians said, Paul told them, if you fail to discern the Lord's body, you eat and drink damnation to your soul. In other words, the effort you're expending to take this is to no benefit. It's really doing you more harm than it is good. Isn't that strong? One more time as we come to that part of it, it's not the time to be thinking about work tomorrow, nor the time to be reflecting upon the ball games today, even though the favorite team may be playing. It's not the time to be pondering the characteristic of yard mowing. It's not as though any of that's wrong by itself, but that's for a different time and place. This time, Paul said, we must exert effort to consider the nature of the Lord, His body. You and I remember that when the Lord instituted that in Luke 22, verses 19 and following, you'll notice He gave thanks for that bread, and then He broke it. And as He gave it to them, He then ushered that, Take this, He said, for it is My body which is broken for many. Now, as you and I realize, inasmuch as His body, of course, was so mutilated and beaten, He then, of course, after it, took the fruit of the vine and said again, This is My blood in the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You and I could never enjoy any hope of heaven were it not for that. What that represents. How much does it mean to us? One more time, may I suggest, if we aren't careful, we may allow labor to have no benefit. As you and I close that slide, isn't it true that we've seen another example? Let's consider yet a third one. What about some labor that, again, may well have no benefit? What about prayers? I'm sure all of us would be quick to say how vital a part in the Christian life prayer has. We're admonished to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. We see prayer exemplified in the life of Christ. And if the Son of God was in need of prayer, how much more do I need it? With regard to that prayer, Jesus went out, Mark 1, 35, even a great while before day, and He prayed. In Luke 6, verse 12, He prayed all night long before selecting those apostles the next morning. Prayer is such a vital, such a needful thing. It is a place wherein you and I can lay upon the Master, the great God of heaven, those things far too great for us, to beseech His wisdom, to beseech His insight, to beseech that which is needful for you and I to see those fiery darts that the devil's hurling our way. Ephesians 6, verses 12 and following. But yet in prayer, might we note the following. When we come together in, in, in a time like this, we realize that there is a gentleman, a man, who is leading us in prayer. 
where is my mind as he's leading? One more time, is it thinking about lunch? Is it thinking about the activities of this afternoon, perhaps fishing, golf, or otherwise? Is it thinking about the great burden resting upon my desk tomorrow? May I suggest to you, what does the New Testament say about our prayers? I will pray with the Spirit, and I'll pray with the understanding. In other words, the same language that was true with respect to singing is also stated with respect to praying, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. All of us are then admonished by God that when that man's leading us in prayer, we should be listening carefully and listening very astutely. That means, again, it's not the time for wandering minds, and it isn't the time to be pondering other features and attributes of the physical body or otherwise. You'll notice that this could again be a time when maybe I've bowed my head. Maybe there's a person who will arrive at the day of judgment for years and years they prayed in some kind of assembly, but their mind wandered most of the time. Their heart really wasn't in the prayers. Won't that be a case of labor for no benefit yet? That kind of matter, that kind of consideration brings us to note one more feature. The New Testament presents this idea in an even stronger way, at least in one case. As this notion of prayer is highlighted, you and I are often mindful of the word amen. So this gentleman has arrived at the end of the prayer and he says, in Jesus' name, amen. And of course, we know in a physical way that he's concluding the prayer, but that isn't all he's doing. Notice he says, amen, which means, Lord, may it ever be, Lord, may it be so. And yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the brethren are also admonished to say that, Gentlemen, may I encourage you, when the, when the man closes the prayer, all of us should be ready with a hearty voice to say, Amen. This room shouldn't be quiet at that moment. Men, we need to be saying, Amen. If our thoughts have been with that prayer, and if it's been scriptural, then we need to affirm that our feeling is the same, and we need to say amen. Let's work on that. That indicates, first, we've had to listen to the prayer, right? We can't amen what we don't know the man said. But if he said a scriptural prayer, a heartfelt appreciation in light of not only beseeching God, but thanking Him, let us give a hearty amen to it. It'll be a time of, of exercise that's good. You'll notice as we close that slide, that particular thought of it. The New Testament on so many occasions encourages us to appreciate the blessing that is prayer. What about number four? Giving. We know that one of the other attributes of New Testament worship has to do with our financial contribution, our giving to the cause of Christ. One more time, I wonder, could there be a way in which that could be labor for no benefit? And your mind has already raced to those passages that describe it. Jesus, on one occasion in Luke 21, He sat over against the treasury, and He observed and watched as individuals were putting in their contribution. And the Lord's attention was drawn to they were wealthy and those that were rich, and they cast in a lot. But there was a widow, a poor widow. She threw in two mites. Two mites. 
And the Lord said, she's given more than anybody else. Now may I ask, what did the Lord mean by that? I mean, obviously, in terms of monetary amount, she hadn't. But what was the Lord looking on? May I suggest He was looking on the heart and she gave all that she had. She had given sacrificially. She had given in a heartfelt way of appreciation and thanks to the one whom she loved. Do you and I do that? We are told we must never give grudgingly. If a man who is stingy, who rather reluctantly gives what little he does, the Lord doesn't have much respect for that. Oh, it's true that those funds will be used for the betterment of the Lord's kingdom. But as far as the benefit for that man on the day of judgment, there won't be any. That's what those New Testament passages teach. What about the other attributes and considerations concerning giving? Do you and I give cheerfully? Paul told the Corinthians they needed to. And by inspiration, isn't it true, that applies to us. Are we happy to be able to give what we can? Are we joyously thankful that that can be used to expand the borders of the Lord's kingdom and bring souls to the knowledge of Jesus, to carry out the works that He approves? I know that it's entirely possible to look upon giving as just a physical thing in which I put some money into a plate, perhaps dollar bills, perhaps coinage, perhaps a check. May we see it as as a more significant thing. We are fellow laborers with Him. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 7, 8, and 9. And inasmuch as we labor with Him, that is one means whereby His work can be accomplished and permitted, of course, to be done. That kind of giving asks us to note this. Suppose there's someone among us or a Christian of our day who perhaps financially is able to give a lot. But who does so with a wrong attitude, with a wrong motive, with a wrong consideration? May I suggest, according to 2 Corinthians 9, that would be labor to no benefit. These kinds of thoughts are very moving, aren't they? Because in it, the God of heaven has a very serious interest in the attitude that you and I utilize to carry these things out. What about number five? Let's consider God's plan of salvation for just a moment. That beautiful act of baptism. You and I appreciate how exquisitely powerful that is. Now certainly it is prefaced with belief, with repentance, and with confession. And we would never wish to in fact make those less significant than they are. But since baptism is so often a matter of immediate interest, why don't we think for just a moment about it? Baptism in the New Testament is commanded in light of obtaining the remission of sins. Baptism is not merely a a spectacle of show for the people that are gathered. That's not the purpose of it. It is rather that moment, that act in which one reenacts the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross. His body was buried. He was resurrected by the power of God on that Sunday morning. In the same way, in baptism, the old man of sin, having now died in the act of repentance, is buried. He then, as a new creature, rises to walk in newness of life, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That's the primary consideration and the great matter behind baptism. 
Notice as you consider on that slide. And as we mentioned a moment ago, those matters that are prerequisite or preface to it. Didn't Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Mark 16, 16. Didn't Peter on Pentecost say, Repent and be baptized? Acts 2, 38. And so one must believe prior to baptism. One must repent prior to baptism. And of course that eunuch made great confession prior to baptism in Acts 8, 36 and 7. At that point, what if we ask this question? Suppose a person is dunked beneath water, but they didn't repent prior to it. Maybe their belief was not in it. Perhaps they did so because a friend did. Maybe they did so because their parents wanted them to. Maybe they did so because they appreciated that it would work for their betterment in a financial or business way. May I suggest then that effort that was expended was labor without benefit. We have to meet the prerequisites even in light of baptism in order for that to be recognized as a scriptural one. That's the reason you and I take such care when someone does come forward that we ensure that they understand what it is that's being done, and that their belief and the nature of repentance is a critically understood and act that needs to be performed. When you and I think about this as a fifth example, labor to no benefit, we've discussed one by one these particulars, and they've all been challenging. What about number six? In some ways, this is going to bring us full circle. One more time, there were those in Matthew chapter 7 who said, We have done many wonderful works in your name. Surely we're going to have entrance to heaven. And then the Lord, perhaps in shocked dismay to them, said, I never knew you. They thought they had known Him. Maybe even they would overwhelmingly agree that they did, but the Lord never knew them. And may I suggest that that's by far the more important. Does God know me? Does the Lord Jesus Christ know you? If He does, you have every right as a person wearing the name of Christian, Christian, to appreciate the honor and the blessing that's yours. If any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name, 1 Peter 4.16. It is true then, isn't it, that that kind of knowledge when God knows you and me reminds us of Paul, doesn't it? Galatians 2.20 said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. These thought they knew the Lord. The Lord didn't know them. And so those works that they had done... That labor they had invested, it was to no benefit. It is with that said, why don't we close our slide that way? The New Testament commands you and me as faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ that we too will be those involved in good works. Titus 3.14 says, And let ours also maintain good works that we be not unfruitful. And so you and I, as we are Christians, we are busy with good works every day, striving to bring about the will of the Lord, carrying out His blessings and carrying out those things He has commanded. 
But at this point, may we notice, if somebody engages even in that, which the Bible may otherwise endorse, but they do so without the approval and permission and that knowledge whereby God knows them, it's labor to no benefit. You can feed all the hungry you want to. You can visit all the prisons that you may wish. You can, in fact, instruct in various ways concerning supposed goodness of Christ, and yet it's to no benefit if it isn't done in light of the obedient commandments desired by the God of heaven. Can you think about the shock of those on the day of judgment? We've taught in your name. We've even cast out demons in your name. We've done a lot of things in your name. Only to hear Him say, I never knew you. Only to hear Him say, get away from me, you workers of iniquity. What they were really doing, the Lord called iniquity. They'd never in fact, apparently at that moment, were not living with forgiveness of sin. They were clouded over in sins and iniquities. And that work they had done was to no benefit. May you and I never allow that to be said of us. May we never engage in efforts, whatever they may be, in the supposed call and name of God, and yet that be in such a way that it's to no benefit. Surely as we close that slide, you notice that there were those in the New Testament that we have our examples of these. What would you say about Ananias and Sapphira? We have sold land and given it to the apostles to feed the hungry. And those who are in fact in various and sundry difficult places, look what we've done. They lied in the process to the Holy Spirit and to others, and God took their lives three hours apart. Labor to no benefit. What about that scene in Matthew 6 verses 1 and following? Those who fast and those who pray and those who engage in other activities, but they do it to be seen of men. Where is their reward, Jesus said? He said, they've got their reward. God's not going to give me any more. They've got it. One more time on the day of judgment, labor to no benefit. That kind of labor, you see, is a very dissatisfying thing. I think we'd all agree. We began the sermon by saying, we don't like the idea of laboring, but getting nothing for it. And yet we've learned today, there'll be a lot of those on the day of judgment who've invested something. Maybe even a lot. And they'll get nothing for it. Let's close our lesson this way. The purpose of it has been to use the Word of God to motivate you and I to appreciate that labor very much can be to no benefit. As sad as that is, as troubling in some ways as that is, the Bible teaches it. And so it is. Labor to no benefit is very serious. You and I can be guilty of it. We learned about it today in light of singing and praying, in light of the Lord's Supper, even in light of baptism and the good works of the Christian life. It might be that there's someone in this audience, even one or more, which has come to a place in life that maybe, though once a faithful Christian, labors invested of late are to no benefit. Your heart hasn't been in it. Your mind has been elsewhere. Your motivation in life has been directed away from this. And it's been directed to things that are carnal. Paul wrote in Romans 8 verse 6 that to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Today if your heart has been pricked and touched in that way, we do 
strongly make this statement. Why don't you come back to your first love? Jesus does love you, you know, still. Though you've walked away from Him, He's never given up on you yet. He wants you back faithfully in His fold. And if we could assist in that way by praying to God, you realize you've got to repent and you've got to confess those things. We can't do that for you. But upon those things, you let us know and we'd be delighted. In fact, we'd even be honored to pray to God for we know by His promise He will forgive you and He will reinstate you to a place of faithfulness. Your name will again be put back into the Lamb's book of life. But it might be that someone has never become a Christian, but after a lesson like this, you want to be because you don't want labor to be invested for no profit, for no benefit. You want to make sure that all is well with your prayer life and others so that you can enjoy the great promise and hope of heaven. Today, if there would be anybody in this audience that would be in a position to want to make things right with God in either of these ways, we use this as a time of encouragement and a time of invitation because we love you and we want you to be saved. But even more than that, Jesus does. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If anyone would wish to come today at this moment of invitation, we will stand and sing in just a moment and invite you to do so. Even now, while together we stand and sing.